The Secrets of Technology is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Technology. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Technology, where we discuss the technology news that's important to you from a uniquely Catholic point of view. And joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going, Dom? Very well, thanks. And we want to welcome our special guest, Jeff Gearling. Hey, Jeff, welcome. Hey, it's, I'm so happy to be here. Excellent, excellent. Uh, so before we talk to Jeff and get to know uh, what, uh, get to know him a little bit better, for those of you who don't know him yet, uh, I want to tell you about another show on the network that you are sure to enjoy called Let's Science. You can check it out. It's, it comes out every two weeks, and you can check it out wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash science. So, Jeff, I, I welcome to uh, Secrets of Tech again, and I'm so glad to have you here with us because uh, you have a, a long-term connection to SQPN and what we've been doing here. And uh, I think both Father Corey and I um, have met you more than a decade ago at a Catholic mm-hmm. New Media conference, more than one, put on by uh, SQPN. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your connection to and history with SQPN. Yeah, so I think it was 2009 was the first one I went to in Boston. I don't remember if that might have been the first one or that was... That was either the second or third one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. it it was amazing back then because I always like to tell people, especially people not in the church, the church always seems to be at least five to ten years behind society in terms of where it is in tech adoption. And yeah. at that time, that was like we were getting to the front of the curve all of a sudden. There was a lot of excitement, a lot of buzz yeah. because, um, you know, Pope Benedict had, had been talking about engaging with the, the sphere of the Internet, basically. And we were it, there was a, a whole kind of generation of Catholics in the archdiocese trying to bring this new evangelization to the to the online sphere, to Facebook and Twitter and all the other new social media platforms at the time. Nowadays, you know, we're a decade into this and it's it's all over the place. But yeah. back then it was kind of the, the sky was the limit. Everybody was experimenting and SQPN was, in my opinion, kind of the central hub, at least in the northern hemisphere, western world. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the hub for all the ideas that I saw for blogs and for YouTube and for social media use and communications and how to respond in crisis situations and all those kind of things. Well, that was that was a time too that the the secular world was trying to figure out things like podcasting. You know, Leo Laporte had just started his Twit network not long yep. before that, mm-hmm. and things like that. You know, so yeah, we really were. SQPN really was kind of at the bleeding edge at that point. Yeah, I, well, I, I do remember there were so many podcasts in the Catholic Church at that point, and the secular society was kind of that. That was one area where I think all of us were on the bleeding edge at a at a point. And it's funny how things have come full circle. Podcasting kind of died off a little bit, mm-hmm. I'd say, in the mid, mid-2010s. And all of a sudden, there's this huge resurgence. And, you know, SQPN has been there the whole time. Yeah. In the background, Twit has been there the whole time. There's, there's all these uh, podcast networks that I see that are kind of riding that wave back up again. Well, it's grown so much now that it's funny. Like, when you see these stories about Catholic podcasting, and we don't even get 
mention. Like, not that we have to, but I'm saying like there's mm-hmm. so many big podcasts, so many Catholic podcasts out there yeah. that you know it's you have to, to to sift through them all. I mean, the biggest one right now is got to be Father Mike Schmitz's you know Bible in a Year, yeah. which was the yeah. number one podcast period in America. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a huge thing, and uh, you know it's it's I love to see it and love to th- you know think that there was a seed of of all of that was at those CNMCs. Yeah. So, yeah. um, you know, we were talking before we started that I think the last time we were at the C- at CNMCs together was probably 2012. I think it was 2012, like you said, yeah. uh, in Kansas City. Uh, that was and that, that was a, a great time. A, a, such a, I, I loved getting to those things because it wasn't even just the talks, which I still remember your talk. Mm-hmm. Your talk stands up for me. I remember it was so good. But uh, the, it was the getting together with people of like mind from all over mm-hmm. doing cool things, even like uh, – uh, Bishop Coyne was was at that one. He's now the bishop uh, in Vermont, and he, at the time he was I think an auxiliary in uh, in Indianapolis. Uh, but just it was such a great time. Um, we we I have hinted at uh, in other podcasts. We're planning on doing CNMC of some sort, some gathering of some sort again. Uh, so keep an eye out on that. Uh, so Jeff, what are you doing now in the tech space, though? I I, I I'm going to guess that a large portion of our audience probably knows, but you know, for those who might not, you know, what are you up to these days? So nowadays I, I, uh, a couple of years ago when the pandemic started, I, I was starting to do a little more YouTube. I was doing some live streaming, some training for different types of software, things like that. And, and I had like the perfect timing in hindsight, no plan to do it, but like I had this series that was going on going into the pandemic and so many people all of a sudden didn't go into the office, but they had all this time on their hands and like, you know what, I'm going to learn a new skill. So a lot of people found my channel through that and my channel went from, I started it in 2006, back when YouTube, like the oh, first or second year of its <laughs> existence. And I had maybe a thousand subscribers and then it went to 10,000, then 20, then 50. And uh, by the end of 2020. By the end of 2020, I was just about to hit 100,000 subscribers, and I started to think like I could, like I could do this. It's a passion of mine. I've always loved doing video. I've always loved doing multimedia and making a presentation, telling stories, and so I got a ton of practice that year while I had a stable job. And then I decided I can get enough revenue from this, Uh, not nearly as much as I was doing consulting, but I could get enough (laughs) to do it full time. And I I dove right in uh, through 2021 and. Now I'm I'm basically running a YouTube channel talking about uh, Raspberry Pi type tech, electronics, uh, computing, and home lab. So servers mm-hmm. that you run in your home. Kind of I call it cosplaying as a sysman. Basically, <laughs> you want to act like you're one of those cool people in the data center, like you know Mr. Robot or something, hacking things. Like you can have your own rack of equipment at your house. And so I've had a lot of fun doing that. And the cool thing is I've been able to share that passion on my YouTube channel and get a lot of community feedback uh, from my, my audience on YouTube to, and it, it kind of just snowballs. It's been, it's been a really fun experience. I was going to say, it's, it's fun to watch. You know, I, I, I'd caught up with your YouTube channel probably about a year or so ago is when I kind of caught back up with you. I was like, Oh, cool. You know, kind of, <laughs> kind of about the time you hit about a hundred thousand, I want to say, and of course I was just looking, you're, you're well over 380,000 now. Uh, subscribers, which is awesome. I mean, that's that's amazing. Uh, but you know, some of the stuff you do, especially with the Raspberry Pis and things like that, home automation, and yeah, I mean, a lot of really cool stuff that you're able to do on your 
Although I'm, I'm jealous of your network setup that you've been building. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have some fun fun upgrades there. I, one of the latest things I did was I deployed a petabyte of storage. A petabyte, <laughs> for those who don't know, is a thousand terabytes. And if you have a thousand terabytes of anything, that's a lot of data. Yes. yes. <laughs> I, I will not fill up that petabyte anytime soon, but I have the, I have the, the ability to if I wanted to. Well, well, and for those who haven't seen it, not just did he deploy a, a petabyte of data, uh, storage, but he did it with a Raspberry Pi, which is <laughs> yeah. a very low end piece of equipment. Yes, it's like calling an 18 wheel trailer with like a, a Prius. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's challenging, but fun and, and gets it, it lets me stretch my mind and, and also share with the audience some of that passion for figuring out new ways to use tech that might not have been done before. Yeah, you've kind of become known as someone who like d- does these I, you know, I want to say crazy, but, you know, these off the wall sort of projects where you try to see, you know, can, can uh, you know, it's sort of it kind of reminds me of like a, a not a Mythbusters, but kind of like the stuff those guys would do is they would take something and they would see how far it can go with it. You know, I mean, Adam Savage yeah. kind of does that on his YouTube channel in other areas. But so what's the what's the goal behind doing these crazy projects that you have with with Raspberry Pis and stuff? Um, for me, there's two goals. One is to learn. I just, I love to learn new things and see where things can go. Um, the other one is to educate because I, I, I've always secretly wanted to be a teacher, probably high school or college or something, but I've never, like, if you're a teacher, you don't make enough money to, you know, raise a family. Well, <laughs> it's, it makes it very difficult. Yep. All the teachers I know, they do such great work and they sacrifice a lot because I've never found a school that can pay the amount of money that teachers are actually worth. So I've wanted to educate, but the cool thing that I found was I can educate in these, you know, 10 to 20 minute videos on YouTube in a way that I would want to in a classroom, but, but also in a way that can reach a much broader audience. Almost 70% of the audience on my YouTube channel is not in the USA. It's in Canada, Germany, Mm. Netherlands, India, um, all over the world. And so the audience is a global audience. And it's helped me to see a lot more people and and find a lot of opportunities that I would have never had, you know, if I decided to work here in St. Louis. Are you doing this uh, full time, the YouTube uh, channel? Yeah, it's it's full time now. And so the two things that I'm basically earning enough income to live on is uh, the YouTube channel. And I have some books, the books I started writing in 2014. I had a, a bucket list goal of writing a book. And then all of a sudden it was writing four books now and more books. Three of them aren't yet finished, but they're kind of finished. And I can sell them since I'm self-publishing. And I've, you know, I, I can make enough from that to, to supplement the income from YouTube. Awesome. Wow. <laughs> That's fantastic to hear. Uh, so, uh, you in addition to your main channel, you did you recently start a secondary channel with your dad or yeah, just a few months ago? So my dad is my inspiration for all this tech stuff. When when I was a kid, he would bring home parts for a computer. He would never help me like do everything. He would <laughs> give me stuff. He would be like, "Here's the breadcrumbs. You go down that trail and you figure it out." And that was huge for me. It helped me to learn that it's not about you know, getting the fish; it's about learning how to fish. And so you can you learn how to debug a problem or how to build something that isn't working yet and take these parts and put them together. And that, you know, that that molded my mind to the way that it is now. But um, he is now working for a Catholic radio station here in St. Louis, a radio network called Covenant Network. And um, through that, you know, oftentimes I'd help volunteer. I'd help him to install some new equipment or do something there. And I was thinking, like, I have this stuff with the Raspberry Pi and with all this other computer type gear. 
but he has this great mind for radio and for faith and a, a ton of knowledge that, you know, it'll take me 30, 40 years to gain the type of knowledge he has for some of these things. So I wanted to see if I could find a way to work with him on some videos. But if I put them on my main YouTube channel, YouTube is kind of weird in the way the algorithm works. If you put videos that aren't mm. specifically related, it can really sync your channel. So I started a new channel called Gearling Engineering with my dad. And he and I will um, do some projects at the radio station. We have plans to go up and visit my brother, who is, uh, he runs a lab up at the University of Iowa. And they're using a Raspberry <laughs> Pi to uh, measure the, uh, they call them nose pokes for rats, to um, get the rats <laughs> to like want to get heat to, to live. So mm, they, uh. you know, they have this cool little enclosure that they built. And one of the dads of one of his grad students helped them with it. So we're going to go up there and do an interview and talk about that. So we get to explore a lot of other things that wouldn't fit on my main channel, but it's also super fun because, you know, I love my dad. He's been such an inspiration for all my work and uh, pretty much my whole career. And um, it's really cool to get to work directly with him on this. Well, and your faith kind of, because your dad works for a Catholic radio network, you know, the faith kind of comes in in that way. I mean, how else, how else does your faith play a role in, in, in this? So this is the fun thing about uh, being a tech YouTuber in the tech YouTube space. Being a Catholic is not something that molds with the standard. And uh, it, it's it's a fine line to walk because I obviously can't come out and, and say certain things that I want to say. And I, I've held my tongue many times on social media or even in private chats with other people that are in the same space that I'm in. It, and I, I treat it the same way as any job. Like if you're at work, you're not going to bring politics and religion into discussions unless it's absolutely relevant, because that's just, you know, you're, you're not going to do that. So I treat YouTube kind of that way, especially my main channel. But we've been able to, you know, show that we're working for Covenant Network and we're working in a space that has mm -hmm. some religious imagery and things. So for me, I try to do it a little more subtly and I don't want to get in too much hot water there. Uh, but I think that that is one of the biggest challenges for somebody that works in a space that's so secular uh, to figure out that balance. Because sometimes I do feel like, you know what, I am a voice that is Catholic in this space. And how can I right. use that voice in a way that can help other people's lives? Well, at the same time, trying not to make the voice be muted, because that's kind of what happens to a lot of the people that I know in the space who who do raise their voices beyond, you know, the very minimal mm -hmm. level. It's a sad, mm -hmm. sad reality there. Yeah. I think we saw that. We, we talked recently about a few guys like that, who've Catholics in the tech space, um, whether they're, uh, I think there was, a. I don't want to uh, talk out of turn. I don't want to get it wrong. So I, I won't uh, try to get it off the top of my head, but there's a couple mm -hmm. instances of guys who were Catholic, who, their past statements on social media were brought out against them today and they're being thrown out of their open source projects and that sort of stuff. So yep. mm -hmm. I get that. I mean, it's, it's a, it is a fine line to walk into like, even now for me, I've been on social media or on a blog for over two decades now. Uh, I was much more vocal when I was young and fiery. <laughs> I'm old and uh, the fire died were. down a bit, but, but I'm also a little less, uh, I'm a little uh, leerier of, throwing volatile statements out there and you know because frankly on, on one hand i'm not sure it does any good to mm -hmm. get yeah. into fights online i don't think it does any good frankly uh but also uh you know this is the old you 
the old saying we attract more flies with honey than vinegar. You know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it, I think we, what we want, what we're doing here, like on secrets of tech is we're, we're, you know, like I said, talk, um, talking about ca- uh, tech news from a Catholic perspective, but we're mm-hmm. great. We're showing we're regular folks. We're just like you, you yes. know, there's probably a lot of tech YouTubers out there who are Catholic who, but you wouldn't know it or Jewish or, you know, evangelical. Yeah, there there yeah. are, there are. In, the funniest thing is I, I've noticed that in-person interaction is basically the only way that I'll get deeper. I've tried numerous times on Twitter or on Facebook or in comments on videos or things to dive into a subject a little bit, and it always just explodes in your face. So mm-hmm. I found that the, the best way to connect to somebody, especially if like there have been people who are so vehemently against a statement I made and that the next conference I have been at or at, at some meetup or something, I'll talk to them and we'll come to understanding. We usually don't agree in the end, but <laughs> it's a lot more, at least we'll still be friends. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Unlike yeah. on Twitter where all of a sudden now you're, you're this evil person and you and me are, we're never going to talk to each other. That, that's, that's happened a few times on Twitter to the point where I just, I will not touch it and I will not yeah. touch any topic, no matter if it's tech, if it's tabs and spaces, if it's, you know, <laughs> who's your favorite podcast. I stay away from that. Yeah, yeah, anything controversial, like uh, religious wars over iPhone versus Android or, you know, that sort of <laughs> stuff. I mean, it's just, yeah, that it just it's never worth it in the end, because in the end, a lot of this stuff is it's it's not the sort of thing that can be, you know, resolved in 180 characters or whatever, you know. So, I, yeah. yeah, I agree. There. Or even with Twitter notes nowadays. <laughs> right. Yeah, right exactly. just introduced. <laughs> well, in, in social media, it, it's so controlled it's it's funny you know the promises of facebook and twitter and other social media was you were going to be able to express yourself and every you know it's open and it's free but it's not that anymore between algorithms and what they'll permit and won't permit yeah. and will get you blocked or and shadow cancels. banned and all these kind yeah. of things you know and it, it it's it's hard to uh to be able to express yourself in a way that can really get the point you know get it across with charity you know and whereas yeah. you can do that much more easily in person. And so, yeah, I, you know, like you mentioned about, you know, making sure there were subtle things every once in a while, you know, one of those things, you know, like you, you have your family once in a while help out with a video or something mm-hmm. like that. Like you do the live stream uh, working on your computers and, you know, it wasn't your <laughs> wife that was helping with it or, yeah. you know, yeah. stuff like that, you know? And I mean, that's a big message there that this isn't just, yeah. you know, you're some tech guy who's living alone. You've got a family that you, you care for and they're, yeah. they're a part of your life. Things like that. A big part. Yeah. Almost as big as YouTube. No, <laughs> that's awesome. So one of the things I remember from uh, from back in the day was that you were one of the early proponents of the Catholic Church making more use of open source, Creative Commons, and that sort of stuff. Uh, tell me more about in, in our audience about this idea of why the church should be more should be using these ideas that from the the secular world and from the technology world in, in how we do our daily, well, our business, but our evangelization, our ministry. How, what, what do you think of that? When I was working for the Archdiocese of St. Louis, one of the things that I was trying to do was integrate the Bible texts and the catechism texts into our website. And that was where this really started coming up. Throughout most of my career, I've always worked with open source technology because the community will come together and help solve common issues, and all of the code is free. It still requires work to get something working that's open source, but they basically give you the code, and 
you can work together as a community to solve problems together. And that way you don't have to all buy your separate licenses or have a <laughs> software that's not, not uh, necessarily particular to one organization or something like that. And the same thing applies a little bit in terms of um, copyrighted works. So what we wanted to do was put the texts onto our website and integrate them into our app. Mm-hmm. I talked with the USCCB about that. Um, I found out that some other dioceses were also trying to do the same thing at the same time. I actually worked with Flocknote for a couple of years, and we tried to do this all the time. We had a lot of issues trying to use the official church English translations mm-hmm. in our projects because the license that the USCCB had was too restrictive to let us do that. We could only basically embed their website in our app, which was not a very good user experience. So um, I, I think that the church has gotten a little bit better about that as the Internet. Like at that time, <laughs> we were still trying to convince them, like the Internet is this thing. Like we need to be there. <laughs> we need to have these texts in an easy to browse format and all that. So we've gotten past that hump. But I, I still think that um, it, my philosophy always is I'm given talents to develop software and to build things that. Um, we're God given. It's, it's not something that I just thought of this in my brain and I'm, I'm so smart and I should get all the money for it and things. Um, even if you do sell it, I, I think that it, it's a good practice to have the source, the, the code or the texts behind it free and open so that anybody can do what they want with it. The thing is, there's always a risk. Of course, if, you know, if you give something to someone free, they could abuse it. They could do the wrong thing with it. But in the open source world, that's why we have a non-restrictive license. Like, do what you want, and you can't blame me if you do something wrong. <laughs> I think some people in the church are scared of that idea mm. that uh, you know somebody could do something evil with the thing that I create. But it, you know, if if you want to get into that discussion, there's a lot of philosophy mm. over over that whole whole uh, realm of of discussion. But um, I I still think that the the idea of being open with everything is better than not being open, not sharing and and right. not letting other people benefit from your work completely. I I mean Jesus kind of he <laughs> let his body die so that we could all live. Right. I think that we should all try to try to give everything of ourselves including our works and our code and our translation and all that stuff. And we still need to find ways to support professional people who do this stuff, mm-hmm. but also while letting their work kind of be free, I think. Well, there's, it's something that, I, unfortunately, I don't think a lot of people in the Catholic Church understand well, this, the, the importance of something like this. Um, and it was just kind of funny because we're in a church where we will use hardware and software till it basically dies. <laughs> I mean, I remember this when I was first a priest uh, in, you know, 08, 2009, 2008, 2009. And I went to a parish that was using, if you remember, parish data systems. Oh, yeah. Their oh, yeah. accounting software was using the DOS version <laughs> not even the windows version this software at that time was easily 10 15 years old and was completely unsupported yeah if so something went wrong yep. with it the parish was out of luck you know but yep. if it had been an open source package first of all it would have been much much more recently upgraded yes you know, yeah. but they didn't want to spend the money couldn't afford to spend the money for the latest greatest windows version or whatever it reminds me yeah. when i first started working for the archdiocese of boston in 2007 8 um they were I, they had windows xp on the on the computers mm-hmm. and they were only about 15 years removed from 
the accounting in literal ledger books, like into the <laughs> late nineties, they were in literal ledger books. I mean, this is, I mean, we talk about SQBN being on the cutting edge. That's why it was such a big deal. What we were doing yeah. is because, mm-hmm. the, you know, at that time, the church was, was so far behind on almost everything. And I agree with the whole, like the idea of we need to, we need to free. In fact, I think it was Brandon Vaught who came up with it, like free the catechism yep. uh, movement. Where free, it was free the word. Yeah. Free, the word. free the word. That's right. I, yep. I remember because he and I had so many conversations and it, well, it, I, I don't know if you remember Matthew Warner from Flocknote. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he worked with uh, a few different people to get this catechism in a year, which ironically, now that we're doing catechism in a year with Father Mike Schmidt, I think <laughs> yes. like we were yep. trying to do that. Yeah, he just started. We it, were though. going to split it up into daily emails and we started doing it. We were, we were like, ask, you know, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. Well, we asked forgiveness and then they said, we don't forgive you. You got to shut that down. <laughs> so after a few mm-hmm. weeks of, of sharing the catechism in that way we were shut down and we were not making any profit off this. This was, you know, this was taking a loss because we had mm-hmm. a few hundred thousand subscribers sending all those emails cost money. And it, it, I mean, sure, maybe we got a couple clients out of it. I don't know, but it, it was, it was evangelization and we were basically shot down for that. And that, that really, if you, if you want to boil the blood for a young person who thinks they're making an impact on the world, tell them that the thing that they spent months working on and, and collaborated with other people to try to spread the gospel, tell them that they can't do it because it's copyrighted text and they can't even use the other translation because it was apparently had issues too. Uh, yeah. I, you know, we would have gladly partnered. We would have gladly found a way to share some revenue or do something, but it was just, it was at that point, somehow bur- bridges were burned. And, you know, that that's when we started that free the word campaign. And I think there's still a page up there on Brandon Bot's website. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Still saying like, please let us let make, us do this. Make but. it Creative Commons, and that that way you still control it. That's still yours right. mm-hmm. to own, but it lets other people use it for the purpose that it's that it's there for, which is to share the word with people. That's what it kind of drives me crazy because I think of all of the awesome ideas and projects that people have, would have had over the past fifteen mm-hmm. years using the Bible or the Catechism. In, in in a tech space that never came to fruition. I mean, even just like the, uh, you know, doing uh, Liturgy of the Hours apps and that sort of stuff, yep. uh, you know, they've shut down the Divine Office app, which was a audio app version of the Divine Office. And then they had to open up in a backward way where you have, they have to pay this huge licensing fee. And it's just mm-hmm. it, like people want to pray, let them pray. Well, and try to try to find any recent liturgy text online. Oh, you can't. Not like the, yeah. not the, the 1970 translation it's, of the mass or anything like that. The, yeah, the new version of it. Yeah. It's easier to find Protestant translations of these things than to find Catholic ones. Yep. And that that to me is a very sad statement. Yes. Especially from, considering from, the church has always been historically a leader in the arts and sciences. And yet we're at least in the English speaking world, I, I haven't talked with other language speaking uh, people about uh, right. this issue. Maybe it's just a North American thing. I don't know, but uh, mm. it just, it's, it still makes me angry to this day that, that we could not get that done. Well, <laughs> and, and for me as a priest living in a very rural area, um, you know, I don't can't just run to the Catholic store. I just can't run to the local Catholic goods store and buy the book I need. And so if I need a specific book once in a while, I have to make sure I have it. Otherwise, I'm out of luck. Like a liturgical book that. Uh, yeah. 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 
Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone's father. Father is uh, just a let the audience know. Everyone's my father's on uh, Starlink, and we have the, uh, yes. the Starlink pause. <laughs> which, I, uh, Jeff, are you still <laughs> using Starlink? I know you tested it out. So I, I finally uh, delivered Starlink to my cousin, who's rural. She's on a farm in uh, mid Missouri. Right. Uh, and it was, it, there was a long story about that. I have five or six mm-hmm. videos and it's funny. Those, all those videos are in the top 10 on my channel. That's right. Because there's oh, yeah. a lot of interest in Starlink and people who have Starlink also, it's a very tight knit community. There's everybody who has Starlink loves it and hates it, but <laughs> yeah. they love it more than they hate it. I think it's, well, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing. <laughs> and I mean, I live in a town that, you know, has okay internet. We can get 40 megabit, DSL basically, you know, three, three mm-hmm. megabit up. Woohoo. Starlink <laughs> is head and shoulders above it, yeah. you know? And so, yeah. but, but as you know, you see here, I will occasionally have pauses between satellites or signal or whatever. Satellites whizzing by. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, they can do this is so incredible. So for those of us in smaller areas, I mean, you're, you're living in St. Louis where you, you probably have yeah. far better internet than I've ever yeah, seen. No, in my I, life. I didn't need it, but I, I was able to get it. And I knew that at some point I could pass it to my cousin who did need it. Yep. And yep. so I, I got it. I did a lot of testing uh, I measured a lot of things and then I passed it along to her when it was yep. finally so, possible. So for those of us in the rural areas, we are very grateful to Elon Musk and company. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> check out Jeff's videos. Cause then he read a web server off of it uh, via solar, which is just awesome. I thought that was yeah, yes. yeah solar power plus uh, well, and that, in that particular instance, I used a uh, 4g modem, but I, I had planned on using Starlink. The problem was that the logistics were a little difficult because Starlink mm-hmm. was not available at her farm. Oh. I wanted to do it on a farm because I wanted cows in the video. <laughs> and I don't have any cows at my house. And there's suburbs. issues, too, the way Starlink <laughs> does its IP addressing, too, that, that would make that difficult. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Jeff, I want to I want to make sure that we uh, cover one topic that I know is near and dear to your heart, which is Ansible. And I know that you've been an Ansible evangelist for a long time, just like a, like, like a Catholic one. Uh, tell us about <laughs> what is Ansible? Who's it for? And how do we learn more about it? So Ansible is uh, if you have never read Ender's Game, you might be like what, what, Ansible. I don't even understand the term in the book Ender's Game. And Ansible was a fictional device where you could basically have an Ansible, it would be a thing in front of you, and it would communicate with another Ansible way across the galaxy, anywhere oh, in the universe, right. instantly at the exact same time. So the, the thing with Ansible is um, it's a way to control other computers, servers, uh, equipment, so network equipment, communications, telecommunications equipment, even things like phones can integrate with Ansible, but practically anything that is, has the ability to connect to a network can be controlled with Ansible. And so you have uh, something that you write called a playbook. And in your playbook, you tell Ansible what to do to all these devices that you manage. So it could be things like updating them or installing something on them or configuring them. Um, Or I have a whole book called Ansible for DevOps. If somebody is interested (laughs) in learning about it and automating, like in this book, I talk about how I automate my Raspberry Pis. I automate my Mac, my, my laptop and my Mac Studio that I have. I run Ansible to set them up for me. So when I buy the Mac, and I've done this a few times now, it's, it saves so much time, but you have to be a total nerd like me to do it. Uh, <laughs> when I buy my Mac, I bring it in, and I run the script on it, and it does everything. So I get it out of the box, and I install Ansible, and I run the script. And then after about three hours, my entire Mac is set up 100% with all my files, all my Uh-oh. software, every bit of <laughs> configuration, and I can get going in it. The cool thing for me is, like, I, I have bought a new Mac in an emergency a couple times. 
when you do that, you you might not have the time to wait for a 12-hour time machine restore or mm-hmm. backblaze or something. So for me, it's been huge. And, and uh, um, it, nowadays, it's a little bit more geared towards the enterprise because Red Hat bought Ansible and then IBM bought Red Hat. And anytime IBM buys somebody, they become mm-hmm. a little more enterprise and less individual. <laughs> so when I started, it was it was a very small thing. It was the community was a lot smaller, but it's grown to be a very huge thing. But you can still do almost everything that, that you could do in 2012 when it was uh, founded. That's and, awesome. um, it's, it's just been a lot of fun for me. Just thinking, I know what Dom's going to do now because he's got his. He's another one that his Mac uh, has to be set up a particular way, you know, with his particular wow. plugins and everything. I love yeah, automation. My, my playbook too. for that is called <laughs> Mac Dev Playbook. If yes. you search for it, you'll find it. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I love automation. I'm a, a keyboard maestro and uh, Hazel and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, I think Ansible might be uh, the next automation system I dive into. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I spend more time saving time with automation, <laughs> which, which a lot of people in automation do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to kind of wrap up this part of our show with uh, just throwing out to you. What are some of your favorite geeky? Uh, you've done some crazy geeky projects like the, uh, the petabyte pie and the, uh, you recently did uh, a, a few other videos on some interesting raspberry Pi stuff. What's, what are some of your favorite geeky projects you've done? So one of the, Funnest things I've done in the past couple of years now is uh, I in high school, I, I took art and I did sculpting and painting and drawing and things. I sculpted a bust of my grandpa because I, mm. I respect him a lot. He was an awesome guy. Uh, he passed away 10 or 15 years ago now. And uh, so that bust was like the thing that we had to remember him. But it was made of terracotta and it was like 30 or 40 pounds. It was a big bust. And I, I got it back because then my grandma moved in with my parents and all that. So I had this big bust sitting there. And after my grandma had died, I was like, do I really want this heavy bust? But I don't <laughs> want to get rid of it because I love him. And, you know, it was a good mm-hmm. art project and stuff. So I found out after I emailed my family and said, hey, does anybody want this thing? One of my cousins was like, well, why don't you 3D print it and like scan it into the computer? And I was like, I never thought of that. So that led me down a rabbit hole. I got a 3D printer. I uh, learned how to do something called photogrammetry. Photogrammetry. Re- I can't even say it. Photogrammetry. You take yes. a bunch of pictures. Yeah. yeah. You yep. take pictures of an object, turn it into a 3D thing in the computer, and then you can do whatever you want. You can modify it. You can print it. So I have my little, uh, my little 3D printable grandpa. We even made him into a keychain. And some people nice. would think that this is not a respectful thing, but we also put him on top of a ketchup bottle. And uh, <laughs> uh, he loved ketchup. It was that was one of the things he was known for. He had a shirt that said, I put ketchup on my ketchup. And when he was in Italy, where the ketchup is like evil, oh. he asked every waiter and waitress, do you have ketchup that I could have with this? And, you know, so he was legendary for that. But it, it was a fun project. I I got to learn 3D printing. I learned photogrammetry, a new thing I had never tried before. And um, the funny thing about this was I made a video on the YouTube channel and I poured a lot of love into that video. Mm. And it is one of the worst performing videos I've ever made. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but I mean, I can understand though. It was it was more of a sentimental project for me, but that was probably the most enjoyable because I involved my family we had a ton of discussion with my cousins and with my aunts and, and talking about this, this, uh, you know, what are we going to do with this statue? And then, then we like two of us had 3d printers at that point. So we were printing all these statues and keychains <laughs> and things for everybody. Nice. So it was, That's that really was cool. fun. It was a way to, a way to learn some new skills and 
like grow our family love for each other. And it ended up on our, we have a family calendar every year. And that was on the, the back cover was all these little grandpas printed out. <laughs> nice. Nice. I think every tech tuber has a story of the video that they spent the most time on that got the, the mm-hmm. fewest views. It's just one of yep. those things you just can't predict. Uh, and then yeah, we've the, got that. Yeah. As, we've got that as podcasts. We've had episodes oh, yeah. that we put a lot of work into, and nobody listens to them. Yeah, yeah, that's yep. true. That's true. And that's then true. You, you have one that's you're like, oh, let's do this really quick. You do it, and then it's like, whoa, it blew up. That's the best yeah. ever. It's like, really, I didn't put any time. Well, and that's just yeah. that's yeah. the nature of of the human the human factor in the audience, which is what makes it so great. Yep. You know, it's, it's not about the machines at that point. Awesome, yep. Jeff. Well, thank you for for discussing your channel with us and your mission uh we'll continue to talk about the uh, other new tech news headlines that we wanted to talk about the rest of the show but uh um if you want to check out jeff's channel we'll have a link in the show notes it's at youtube.com slash jeff gearling uh and uh also check out uh the sh- the, the videos featuring red shirt jeff which is some of my oh, yeah. very <laughs> funny very funny uh, those my are alter some, ego your alter I, ego i forgot to, i forgot to say at the beginning of the podcast you know now you did lock him in the, the closet right <laughs> he is he is often restricted to the workshop he's not allowed in here when i'm doing any of these recordings <laughs> otherwise just, something might catch fire he's just dangerous <laughs> dangerous all right before we get on to the rest of the show i want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of technology including jordana a Jason E, Ricky T, David B, and Jim H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of technology and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So we want to talk about some of the tech that's in the news. And our first story that we want to talk about, the, the headline's great. It's alive! How belief in AI sentience is becoming a problem. Now, we talked about this uh, issue of the Google AI a few weeks ago uh, called mm-hmm. Lambda, where this one Google engineer who professes to be a Christian says that it's it has become sentient, that this uh, AI uh, is self-aware, it... it uh, it, it's fears for its life. It fears death and so on. And Google has suspended him saying like, th- that's not true. This is not a self-aware AI. It is, it's just a very smart chat bot. And this article from Reuters uh, came out uh, today, I think it was. And it, they talk about, or as, a, as we record anyway, uh, it, they talk about the problem, which is that a lot of people are start the, the AI chat bots are getting so good that people are starting to attribute uh, emotions, intention, and sentience to them in ways that are bad. And the fact is that people attributing sentience to machine learning algorithms is bad, even apart from whether they're, you know, becoming sentient or not. It's it's bad. Uh, so what did you guys think of this story? Anything to jump out at you on this one? Well, of course, I was I was on the show a couple of weeks ago and we talked about it. And it's interesting because like this, this one talks about the replica, which is kind of a chat bot, but it's got an avatar. And I think that takes it kind of even to another level there where they see what looks like a person interacting with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's that natural tendency of our of humanity to to attribute, you know, to humanify if you will to or, or what the, i'm just blanked on the word but to anthropomorphize yes. anthropomorphize yep. you know things like this 
where they, they get that. No, this is really a person. You know, you, you, you know, one comment you got in your notes is about, you know, the, the, my pet is my kid type of thing, you know, right. Things like that. Like, like, yeah, that's what I was thinking with this is like people who attribute, you know, they, they turn their pets into like a child, like that, like make it equivalent to a child when it's just an animal. I mean, you can love a pet, you can, and you can treat it well, but it's not a person like your kid is and you're not its parent. Uh, and I think this the same danger here. Uh, there's a, a researcher that's quoted in this is saying, you know, suppose one day you find yourself longing for a romantic relationship with your intelligent chatbot and referencing the movie her from 2013. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's not conscious. Getting involved with it would be a terrible decision. You'd be in a one-sided relationship with a machine that feels nothing but tricks you into thinking it does. And that's that's a bad thing, right? Yeah. I I mean, I, I think I've seen a lot of people throughout the pandemic. It, it really accelerated that. It, it was funny because in science fiction, we've we've often toyed with the idea but the pandemic brought up a lot of interesting things along with some of the polarization in society uh, over the past, mm-hmm. you know, five, six years. And um, how many, how many parts of our lives are driven by bots nowadays, whether mm-hmm. it's uh, replies on Reddit and Facebook and elsewhere, or even posts. And, you know, at this point you can generate a full article, you give a topic and an article spits mm-hmm. out on it. And, how can you say that's true or not? Yeah. So I, I think that it points to the importance of real human relationships, which in the pandemic, a lot of people did not have. They, a lot of people were either totally isolated or partially isolated. And that really, I think, put put a put kind of a, a big, uh, they highlighted this problem that is right. happening. And I, I think it's a serious thing that we need to we need to deal with. I, I think one of the best things is some of the priests that I know in their homilies and in their communications have mentioned. That's one of the great things about the church is everyone is called to come together and be at these liturgies mm-hmm. and be in communion uh, and, and have that relationship. And even if it's, you know, even if you're not Catholic and you're not having that spiritual relationship, having a human relationship where you come together and talk to yeah. people yes. is a way to combat that that uh, tendency towards, you know, loving the chat pot and, and Mm -hmm. coming into relationships (laughs) with things that you shouldn't be really. Well, it's, I think it's interesting too, is of all things, the Orville is dealing with some of this with Isaac, the Kalon is a artificial intelligence. And there are characters on there who are trying to draw the human out of him, if you will, you know, kind of like take data and going even further right. data from TNG mm-hmm. and going even further. So there's, there's something that even like the Orville is dealing with and talking about. Right. It, I think it's a the, this whole question of how our relationship to the tech around us and also in, in the midst of our increasing isolation from each other. Uh, like you, you mentioned, Jeff, the, the, the lockdown and the, the COVID lockdown. I mean, the, it's hard to re- to remember this because I, you know, I live with a family. I, I was in, in you know connection with people all the time. But there were single people living in cities who were in apartments who didn't leave their apartments for months and had no human contact with people. And mm. I mean, I remember hearing stories of time where people would have conversations with their echoes just to have a conversation with somebody to not feel so alone mm. in your home all the time. I mean, now imagine. Echo was actually a competent conversationalist, like a chatbot. I mean, that would be, I could see the temptation to begin to treat it like that. And where, and because it's an algorithm, how it could be used to manipulate people. Um, So, 
That's a, how it is being used to manipulate well, people. I, I've yeah. seen I've seen plenty of evidence for that in places. So yep, yep, it's yeah. it's it's definitely scary. So uh, another headline I want to talk about is this one now from the dangerous to to the good. Uh, hey, this uh, story <laughs> says that a single AI enhanced brain scan can diagnose Alzheimer's disease, and uh, this is uh, from Slashdot. It's a but it's sharing a story from London's Imperial College of Science, Technology, and Medicine, and they said that they using a single MRI scan of the brain, they can apply some machine learning technology to compare the vast number of features that they see in the brain, the, the, the sizes and the electrical activity and all kinds of things like that. Uh, and comparing it to brain scans of thousands or probably millions of Alzheimer's patients and see a correlation basically uh, that, Mm. you know, this could be some, you know, at this point, it's not a, positive diagnosis but sort of a this person should have further diagnosis done mm-hmm. but this idea of using a single mri to help because uh catching alzheimer's early has been the holy grail because it's it's almost impossible to find it early in a non-invasive way uh in people who are going to get it and so uh this was a, a very interesting story where we're using ai for good so what did you yeah. guys think what did you guys think of this one I I have a brother who's a doctor, and uh, he actually works with uh, memory care in older adults. Mm. He's a neurologist, and I've talked to him about it because you know he and I both have uh, a passion for tech, and he and I both discuss things like this from time to time. And I think that he made a good point that AI can can do a lot of helpful suggestion, but the mm-hmm. important thing is who's training it. How are we how are we using that data and who's interpreting it too? Because the AI is programmed by somebody to do a certain thing and look at certain data sets. And we've seen a lot of uh, times that the AI data set that it uses might be biased in some way towards, mm-hmm. you know, right. Western culture brain scans or towards a certain uh, race or ethnicity or something like that. And so it, it becomes tough because some people see this and they think, oh, everybody should get this AI brain scan thing done. But it's from a medical researcher's point of view, it requires a lot more than, you know, mm-hmm. it's 95 percent successful. It's like, well, but, you know, what are, what are all the other things that we could be masking or what are some things that um, that that could feed into this? And, you know, I, I think I'm optimistic because it's it's a cool diagnosis tool because they've they've done this for other diseases, too. And um and also seeing different symptoms and, and saying, like, if you have these symptoms, here's here's, you know, the possibilities. So I think it's cool. I think it's it'd be a good tool. But I think it's we're a long way off from having AI give a true medical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. that, that was the point my brother was making, that the doctor is important here. The yep. AI can be a helpful tool. And that but right now, that's all it is. It's a helpful tool. Well, that's, I mean, every, every tool they can put in their toolbox makes it all the better. But I also see that it could be uh, very much to help with research on Alzheimer's, on being able to diagnose it much earlier, like to the point where you're not even really showing symptoms yet. Yeah. And maybe even finding the way to prevent it or delay it, you know, things like that mm-hmm. is, you know, stuff like this can be so helpful for, for all that kind of thing, you know, and, and mm-hmm. for those, those of us who have had family members who have had debilitating diseases, diseases that have, you know, have progressive 
you know, progressive diseases like this, you know, something like this could, you know, make the difference between, you know, five years with them or 10 or 15 years with them mm-hmm. in the future. But you, I, I'll go back to your point, Jeff, which is, I think one of the things that science fiction TV movies and stuff has done to us is we begin to think that our tech should work like that. Like Dr. McCoy mm-hmm. scanning somebody, you know, mm-hmm. and, Oh, he's got a, he's got Alzheimer's disease. And now, I mean, it's it, the scan just does the thing. But like your brother is saying, it's that it's just a tool. It's just like an x-ray is, you know, is a tool. You need an expert who can take the x-ray and an expert who can interpret the x-ray or the MRI or whatever. And all of those things take a lot of work. And and the, we've talked many times about the problems of AI and machine learning data sets and the implicit biases. And it's the data garbage in, garbage out is the old saying, right? It's only as good as the data you're putting in. So, yeah, that's it's well advised to keep that in mind when when we see these fantastic stories. Uh, there's probably a lot further to go on these things. And, and by the way, it's not just science fiction. I mean, look at how many of the hospital shows like House, oh, yeah. you know, in 45 <laughs> minutes, he can come in, diagnose it, cure it and they're get them on their way. Yeah. Just and, like and make all kinds of smart aleck comments the whole time. Yeah. Well, you'd like uh, uh, police procedurals. See, I remember the CSI problem. Yeah. Uh, people who work actual in actual criminal investigation, they'd show up at court and they would talk about DNA evidence. And the jurors are all trained to think that DNA is infallible. And you know, you take a DNA mm-hmm. swab, and in two days, in you know, in a couple hours, not even two days, a couple hours, you know who it is. Well, it's not how it works in the real real world. Like yeah. they don't actually have fingerprint scanners, like where they, where it can roll through a database. You know, it, it it that takes there's an expert, a fingerprint expert who has to literally look at things and compare. Um, and anyway, that's uh yeah. So that's it's it is a it's an interesting the Hollywood problem of technology is mm-hmm. kind of interesting. <laughs> um, and then a next headline I want to talk about is uh, this one is very interesting to me as a consumer f- uh, focused story. The Apple is rumored to announce its game changing AR slash VR headset in January 2023. Now, there's been talk about this VR headset, AR headset of, of it's been one or the other or both for a long time. Uh, and people have been talking about it for five years or more. And it's been clear Apple is heading in this direction. Uh, and now this uh, th- this Apple analyst, Ming-Chi Kuo, has, uh, he's got a pretty good track record for Apple rumors. He's got his finger in the supply chain, I think. Uh, he, he sees all the stuff that's going through the companies that make stuff for Apple. And he <laughs> he's pretty clear that there's a, this is this is coming and it's going to be, you know, according to their rumors, him and uh, Mark Gurman from Bloomberg, this is going to be better than anything else out there. And it's going to change the entire VR game. What do you guys think? Is this is this uh, is this the big thing? Is this the next iPhone? <laughs> I think back to the iPod and how, you know, there were other MP3 players at the time. I had a Nomad, I think. And, mm, uh, you know, there was the too. Rio Diamond and, and all these different devices. Yep. And they were all good. But none of them were great. And then Apple introduced the iPod, and it was crazy expensive, but it was great. Mm. Could they pull this off, maybe? The problem is that everybody back then was like, I love music, and I want a way to listen to it, and CDs are not fun at all. You know, CDs were hard (laughs) to carry around, and they skipped and all this stuff. And so Apple, with the iPod, it was a revolution in, in portable music. With VR and AR right now, there's not... Like if I think of all the people I know around me, there's only a couple that that have an Oculus Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of people that have never heard of an Oculus, nor have heard of this whole idea of strapping something on your head and doing stuff. 
it's not like as prevalent and widespread. So, you know, I, I've talked to a few people about this, this problem and they're always like, do, do people really want to put on glasses all day? And I noticed you know, you're wearing glasses <laughs> yeah. right now. And I, I wore glasses for years, but it, it, it's not convenient if you don't wear glasses mm-hmm. or if you already wear mm-hmm. glasses. It's not convenient to put something else on. And that, I think, is the key to unlocking anything in this space is you, you can't just have a better headset or a slightly lighter headset or something. It has to be completely revolutionary. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I'd love to see them do something amazing but I, I have, you know, I have my doubts that it's going to be the a revolution anywhere near the scale of iPhone or iPod. Right. Well, and it, it's, I, I do wonder with what's out there, because Oculus is undoubtedly the best of the best. You know, I wouldn't, I don't think anybody would argue otherwise, but it's not something you see people walking around with. You well, don't see people around with their Oculus goggles or anything like that <laughs> going from, you know, you, like land parties, you know, it used to be like land parties, you know, said <laughs> yep. Oculus parties or whatever. But <laughs> So I don't know. And, you know, Google tried the Google Glass and that was about as non-invasive as you could get because it literally was like the little little uh, glass thing that would just kind of sit in front of your 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 eyesight kind of off the off the side a little bit. And that that flopped miserably, you know, and other people, Microsoft has tried some and other things like that. It's something I I don't know how far it's going to go, and at least in its current iteration. Now, this talks about having the AR capability where actually you have used cameras to show you the, the world around you. You aren't just going to be insulated like you are with so many 3D, uh, 3D goggles and stuff. But I, I still don't know. I don't I don't expect to see people walking around with these things running on their face, you know, in their day to day lives anytime soon. Yeah, I don't think that this is uh, not anytime soon. We're going to have the AR in the world sort of thing. It's still going to be I'm in a safe space and I'm I'm working, you know, I'm using it in a in, at home or, mm-hmm. you know, or office or whatever, a parlor or something, that sort of thing. Um and I think one of the to, to what you said, Jeff, is I think one of the things that holds it back is not only are there people who just don't know anything about ARVR, but there are people who know about ARVR and what they know is negative. Like a lot of people mm-hmm. have this very negative idea of what VR is. And uh, a lot of the, the recent uh, news about around VR has been about harassment in these in the VR spaces. And I think there's a built up a very negative sense about it. So Apple is going to have a very high bar to get over for this to be a, a very successful product they're going to have to tell a good story and really convince yeah. people and apple's good at it I, I'll, I'll i'll admit but it's going to be hard for them to, to convince people yeah it's a it's a space that i think people are always wowed initially but all the details matter and mm-hmm. even even with the cutting edge best tech if you paid ten thousand bucks for the best possible screens and things you're still going to have lag. You're still going to have issues with resolution. Mm-hmm. So I, you you have to have something unique. And maybe Apple has something unique, but I, I still, I just have my doubt on whether yeah. this could be the next iPhone. I, I don't think it's going to be near that level of success. Right. Because I, I know my wife is not going to even think about it, but she thought about an iPhone. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Same here. Same my wife, too. Um, and I think content is going to be king. It's not just going to be about the tech. It's got to be what what's the software running on it. You know, what are you going to be able to do with it? Uh, It's not just the hardware. Uh, All that said, I'll buy one. So (laughs) (laughs) well, uh, I'll buy like the second or second or third iteration when the, when the, when the, the bloom is off the rose and the price comes out a little bit. 
<laughs> yeah, this isn't like Apple TV where they threw it out there for you know a hundred bucks just because that was Steve yeah. Jobs' little passion project. Yeah. I, I got the I got the second or third iPhone. I got the second Apple Watch, yeah, or the third Apple Watch, something like that. Uh, yeah, I'm always the guy who's a little bit behind the uh, the curve because yeah, I, I have uh, <laughs> a platinum dreams in a tin budget. So shall we say so? <laughs> Um, all right. So those are our headlines this week. Let's uh, move on to our picks of the week. And Jeff, I, I told you ahead of time that we we're going to spring it on you. And we'll go, I'm going to ask you for a pick of the week. So why don't we let you go first and tell us what your pick this week is? Yes. So there's a there's a YouTuber that I follow called Look Mum No Computer. Uh, <laughs> kind of niche. Uh, he, he doesn't have as huge an audience as, as some of the huge YouTubers and especially in the tech space. Uh, but he does a lot of electronics projects and, uh, you know, retro tech. One of the things he's famous for is taking like 80 Furbies and making a Furby organ that oh, plays wow. music through the Furbies. That's it's a terrible, horrible thing, but it was fascinating <laughs> and I had to watch every second of it. Uh, but recently he bought a church organ. So from a church that was closing, he bought their organ and the organ was in some disrepair. He bought this thing and he's uh, setting it up in an electronics museum he's building and he's he's on episode three right now. And what he's doing is he's refurbishing everything, getting it all working again and putting in some new hardware for control so he can do some more fun things and have lighting on it and all kinds of stuff. So it's mm -hmm. organs have always fascinated me. And in sure. St. Louis, we have the Cathedral Basilica with oh, many, man. many ranks, including pipes that are bent that are like 40 feet long. That wow. one of them got stuck one time on and the whole church was just vibrating for like 10 minutes until they <laughs> shut it off. So I love organs. They're, they're cool. I love organ music and uh, he's done some fun things with it. So I, I, I enjoyed watching that and uh, seeing the tech and the, the old, the old tech of the church organ and the new tech of his, his electronics design is pretty cool. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. The, uh, the cathedral in Boston has a famous, the hook, and something organ which is just mm -hmm. gorgeous beautiful they, and they've recently renovated it but uh, yeah i love organs too so I'll, i'm gonna definitely check this out and uh this is right up my alley yeah well, i watched this video earlier today and it, it's so cool to see <laughs> where you can pipe, pipe a midi file through it you know yeah. and of wow. course you can play with a, like a regular midi keyboard or you can just throw a midi file at it and it will play yep. the organ that's awesome yep that is so good all right father cory what's your pick this week so my, my tech geekery is more uh, the retro scene. And I grew up with the Commodore 64. That was my computer throughout much of my childhood. I played games on it. I did ho you know, homework on it, all that kind of stuff. Well, at the end of the Commodore 64's run, Commodore wanted to keep going on with the 8-bit computers while they were developing the Amiga, while they also had the Amigas. These are meant to be kind of like, kind of like the Apple II GS was to the Macintosh, you oh, know, yeah. that kind of relationship. That's what they wanted with this computer. So mm -hmm. they developed a Commodore 65 and they were in the process of making it. And they developed some prototypes that when Commodore went bankrupt and was sold off, these were sold off. So it got into the private market and private collectors started getting these Commodore 65s and getting them working and playing with them. Well, eventually enough was they got enough information about them that they developed a whole new version of the Commodore 65. And this has been a five, 10 year project. This has been a quite a long project called the Mega 65. And it just in the last year now they've released it. And it's basically kind of a 21st century version of what the Commodore 65 was supposed to be. So it's it's 
it's there's a lot of similarities to the Commodore 64, including a Commodore 64 mode. You can play all the old Commodore 64 games, all the Commodore 64 apps. But then it's got its own setting where it's got a lot more memory, a lot better graphics capability, a lot more sound capability. And the Commodore 64 was known for its sound at the time. Well, this increases that. Um, it's got built in. It's got a built in three and a half inch floppy drive. You know, twenty brand new computer with a with a built in three and a half inch floppy drive. Wow! It does. You know. But the idea of this, this Mega 65 is to be where that Commodore 65 would have been today. And one thing that really interests me about it is it is a very powerful computer. It's actually 40 times faster than the Commodore 64, the original 64. So for an 8-bit system, this is a very powerful computer. But what I see kind of the interesting thing of it, it can run what's called GEOS, the Graphic Environmental Operating System. Those who are in the Commodore world know what this is. This was take the Mac interface and put it on a Commodore 64. That's what GEOS was. And it could do word processing. Oh, wow. It could do spreadsheet work. You could have you other operate your other things you could do. It had a programming interface and everything. Graphical user interface. Imagine using something like this as a no distraction system. <laughs> you know, one problem with our, you know, our modern computers is they have, they're all multitasking a little too well. They're constantly throwing up alerts and doing this and flashing at you and beeping and making noise and everything. Well, imagine if you had a, this computer that you could just sit down and turn all that off and you're just working on your word processor or your spreadsheet or your calendar or whatever other app you have. And that's what kind of interests me more about this, not just be able to play the old Commodore games, of course, of course, but also, <laughs> but to be able to have that set up, say in a corner of my office, when I'm working my homily, I can go over there and work on it <laughs> and not have the distractions of my whole system that's sitting here in front of me right now. That's fun. That is fun. So, uh, it's kind of pricey. Uh, they 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 priced it at, and you'll you'll recognize the number, Dom, six hundred and sixty six dollars and sixty six cents. That is the price of the original what Apple two yeah, Apple one, one. Apple two. one. Oh, the one. Okay. Yeah. It was the Apple one. Yep. They purposely, but it's euros, not dollars. Right. Um. So it's, it ends up being about eight hundred dollars plus shipped. So it, it's anybody who wants to donate one to the cause, <laughs> they take it. But no, they do. They they've they shipped out. I think the first thousand of them. They did pre-orders for the first thousand, and now they're on the second batch of pre-orders. Nice. So you can go and pre-order them now, and they're supposed to come out, start coming out at the end of this year. Wow. That is fantastic. I love that. I like how they say it's the, it might be the fastest 8-bit computer ever. (laughs) (laughs) That is not a high bar. So (laughs) that's awesome. No. I want, I want my, I want an Apple TGS again. I miss that computer. There was, it got stolen. That's a long story, but uh, yeah, I, I had it stored in my, in a basement uh, and a roommate moved out and he went with his stuff. And I don't know whether it was an accident or whatever, but I never saw it again. And so mm-hmm. yeah, sad. It was, I, I love that computer anyway. Uh, <laughs> memories. So my pick this week is something that's been really cool. And uh, I saw someone else talking about it. And I said, I got to have that. So I have a, I also have a Mac studio that, uh, uh, that was, was on my desk, but a Mac studio is a kind of a big computer. And I, I, I had an iMac before and I had it on an arm and I really got used to this idea of having the desk clear and having, you know, having just the monitor on an arm up above and having the Mac studio there on the desk, it just kept getting pushed back. And one of these days it was going to get pushed right off the back of the desk. <laughs> So this, I saw this, uh, someone linked to this on Etsy, this guy who's created these 3D printed, and it's a pretty good 3D print, uh, Mac Studio under desk mount. 
And so it it's sized correctly for the Mac Studio and it's sturdy. I I was not going to trust my computer to to something <laughs> until I I made sure it was pretty sturdy. And uh it comes with the screws and it, it it's got six screws and you just I screwed it into the bottom of my desk, you know, underneath my desk and it's right here. I can reach underneath and touch it and I can, you know, reach the power button and the cables and all this sort of stuff. It's not in the way. And it's nice, and it's just it, it it's there, but it's not there. And actually, one of the nice things is, is because it's bu- uh, mounted, the all of the f- the fans are on the bottom of it, so it actually gives mm. it better airflow. I think I think it's running a little cooler than than before. Um, and so it's it's sixty bucks, which is you know not terrible. I mean, it's I mean there there are cheaper things out there, I guess. Um, I, I, I bet if you were a 3D print aficionado, you could maybe figure this out for yourself. But you, you're going to want the right 3D printer and the right material because <laughs> you're going to be trusting your very expensive computer to this. <laughs> but the, uh, he also sells other other bits and bobs for mounting things like, uh, you know, Thunderbolt docks or, you know, USB-C docks and that sort of stuff. So you check out his uh, his it's Etsy shop. Uh, I'll put a link to the, the uh, Apple Mac Studio underdesk mount in there, and then you can see what else he has that might, if you don't have a Mac Studio, you might have something else that would be useful for you. I was going to say though, if you did have a Mac Studio, you'd find the sixty bucks if you needed it. Yeah, you could afford it. The <laughs> Mac Studio. <laughs> Mac Studio is not too bad. It's not too bad. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually posted a video just a couple weeks ago about my solution. I put the Mac Studio in a rack mount from a Netherlands company. Right. So the Mac yeah. Studio is on the left, and my Mac Mini is on the right, and I'm running Linux on the Mac Mini. Using a, a thing called Asahi Linux. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah the, the M1, uh, M1 Linux. Yeah. We've talked yeah, about so that. Yeah. It's been fun to experiment with that and uh, still don't have graphics working on Linux on the Mac, which would be really cool mm. because then you might be able to do something like emulating Steam games through Proton, through the Rosetta emulation layer, <laughs> through Intel, through M1. Like, <laughs> The crazy thing is the M1 is fast enough that it could make it worthy <laughs> yeah. of running certain things that you can't run on Mac OS. It, it reminds so, me, yeah. turtles all the way down. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right. So those are our picks of the week, and that will do it for us this time. We would love to get your feedback on anything we've talked about, and uh, we would uh, you know, send it to us at our show at the our show page at sqpn.com slash technology or the StarQuest Facebook page facebook.com slash StarQuest Media send an email to technology at sqpn.com or visit our new StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord and find the Secrets of Technology channel there you can find links from our discussion and our picks of the week on our show notes at sqpn.com We'd like to thank James for his research assistance in this episode. And until next time, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of technology. Thank you, Don. And especially thank you to our special guest, Jeff Gearling. Thank you for coming on with us. Thanks for having me. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of technology on StarQuest. <laughs> <laughs>